If you have your Bible, I invite you to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to talk about character today. A little earlier in the service, we sang that song, Just As I Am. Who do you think of when you sing that song? Jesus, obviously, God, but also think of Billy Graham. You ever been to a Billy Graham crusade? How many of you ever been to one? A lot of you, all right. Ever seen one on TV? If not, and the invitation song they always sang was Just As I Am. When I think of Billy Graham, I don't think even so much of him as the great preacher that he was, but the great character that he demonstrated by his life throughout all of those years. I remember many years ago, I was a youth minister for the summer back in Pocomoke City, Maryland. Probably never heard of Pocomoke City. It's not really a city. It has maybe 4,000 people living there. And we weren't far from the ocean, and we would often go to the beach as a youth group. One of the youth parents was a, a state patrol officer. And I was riding with him uh, that day to the beach as we were all going together as a group and taking various vehicles. And I noticed that was back in the day of the 55-mile-an-hour speed limit. Anybody remember that day? Uh, Us old people, okay. I I hated that, didn't you? 55 miles an hour, and I drove it. You know, I didn't have a fuzz buster or a CB radio like you heathens out there. I didn't have that, okay. Anyway, but on his car, he had a little sign right there on the speedometer as a reminder. It said, I set the example. I thought that was great. It's not like I'm going to be pulling people over. I don't care who they are, what they're doing, but I'm going to drive whatever speed limit I want to. No, not for him. He said, I set the example. Today, we're going to talk about character, specifically about pastors maybe most specifically about senior pastors. Next week, we'll get to deacons. I'll go from preaching to meddling. Uh, But anyway, we're going to talk about pastors and and character today from 1 Timothy chapter 3. Paul is writing to this young pastor named Timothy, and he says this in chapter 3, verse 1. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to be the office of overseer, if you aspire to that office, the King James calls him a bishop. We would say a pastor. The New Testament word is episkopos, which literally means overwatcher or overseer, that he desires a noble task. Overseers are charged with giving leadership oversight to the church. They're also called pastors or elders in other places in scripture. Pastor comes from the New Testament word that gives us the English word shepherd. There are many Bible-believing churches that have various different structures. Some are more elder-led. Some are more pastor-led. Some are more staff-led. Some are more deacon-directed. Some are more congregationally-led. Some have a plurality, more than one elder. Others may have a single elder called the pastor. The New Testament emphasis, I believe, is more on the character of the leader than is on the structure of the organization. In our church, as in most Southern Baptist churches, we are led by the senior pastor, 
which is me, with input from committees and staff and deacons, but ultimately the congregation has the final say in all of our decisions. It's my job to lead our church. I don't take a straw poll every Monday morning and ask, well, what outreach program or idea should we try this week? I don't lick my finger and stick it in the wind and say, now, what sermon series should I do next? Okay, I decide those things in much prayer. But there are safeguards. I can't hire or fire a staff member. I can't go out and buy a bus or sign a contract to buy land or build a building. I can't sign a contract to buy anything. I can't spend more than $1,000 in a budgeted line item without checking with stewardship to make sure we have the money in the bank. And the congregation can fire me anytime they want to. They don't even have to have a reason. Isn't that cool? You don't like the preacher? Fire him, all right? You can do that. You have the ultimate say, in a sense. But ultimately, it's not really your church either, is it? This is the church of Jesus Christ. We belong to him. He bought the church. He paid for the church when he died on the cross for your sin and for mine. Everything that we are and everything that we have belongs to him. First one continues. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a a noble task. It's not wrong to want to be a pastor, but it might be a bit unusual. I've never talked to a fourth grader and asked them, what do you want to be when you grow up? And they said, well, I'm going to be pastor of a church someday. I've never heard that. I've heard people say I want to be a school teacher or a firefighter or a baseball player or a basketball player or a doctor or a nurse or something else, but nobody says, well, I want to be the pastor of a church. Never heard that. Have you, Jim? Hadn't heard that either. Most of us probably haven't. But it's not a wrong desire. It's a good desire. It's a pretty good indicator of a genuine call. Most pastors that I know did not have a burning desire to be a pastor when they grew up. A lot of them fought the call. But pretty much every pastor that I know now that they're in the ministry, they had this burning desire to follow God and preach the word and to serve a church. Being a pastor is a high calling. However, it's not about having a title or holding a position. It's about serving. When I was on staff at First Baptist Church in Jackson, Missouri, we had assigned parking spots right up there next to the church. You know, where we have the guest spaces now, that's where they had uh, the staff parking When I first got there, I thought, this is kind of cool. You know, I've never been at a church that was big enough to have an assigned spot for me to park. This is great. After a while, I thought about that. Here I am, 30-something years old, and I don't have to walk very far at all to get into the building, and there's an 85-year-old who has to walk five times further than I do just to get inside. I thought, that ain't right. And so I found a little old lady in the congregation 
And I said, from now on, would you park in my spot? And I'll park out there with the other members. And she said, sure. Because being a pastor, being a church leader, being a Christian is not about bossing people around and about getting privilege for yourself. It's about serving one another. Next, Paul gives Timothy instructions on leadership qualifications. I want you to notice that they are based on character. God never says, look for the most talented, charismatic leaders. Look for the shakers and movers in your church or community. God says, no, look for character. If a person is a powerful communicator, that's great. If a preacher has a dynamic personality, wonderful. But if a pastor doesn't have character, you got problems. You don't want the pastor who is always in trouble. You don't want the pastor who is not a good role model in the community. With that said, let's dive into the character traits of a pastor. The first seven are listed in a positive manner, starting in verse 2. Therefore, an overseer, we might say a pastor, most specifically we might say a senior pastor, must be above reproach. The King James calls him blameless. That doesn't mean he's perfect. Pastors are human. Pastors blow it. Pastors fail. Pastors are far from perfect. If you don't believe that, ask my wife, okay? I am not perfect. But if you are looking for a pastor and your top candidate has character flaws, obvious ones, I have a suggestion. You keep on looking until God gives you a person of character. All the items on Paul's list fall under this general heading. The pastor needs to be a person of character above reproach. Now, when I leave this church, and I hope not to leave here for many, many, many years, okay? But one of these days, I'm going to be too old, and one of these days, God's going to call you to get another pastor. But when you do, I challenge you, I encourage you above everything else to look for a person of godly character. It's more important than anything. You don't want the guy who's constantly screaming at the referees at the ball game. You don't want the guy who's chewing out the waitress at the restaurant. You don't want the guy who's hanging out the bar at night, who's constantly posting political rants on Facebook. You want someone who's going to be an asset to the church's reputation in the community, not a liability. Paul gets more specific as we continue. He must be the husband of one wife. Now, that's probably one of the more controversial passages in all the Bible. There's about 16 different interpretations. Okay, there may not be 16, but there's a lot. Okay, let me give you four or five. One of them is that a pastor's got to be married. Can't be a pastor if you don't have a wife. That's one of the interpretations, Terry. Another one says that you have to be married, and if your wife dies, you can't get remarried. That's another interpretation. There's another interpretation that says no polygamy. What's that mean? You can't have two or three or four or five wives, okay? You got to have one, all right? There's another interpretation. This is probably the most traditional of interpretations. That says that you can't be divorced, And if you are divorced, you can't be remarried. Probably, and I've looked at probably 15 different commentaries over the past several months and years even, 
And I would say three out of four conservative commentaries say that this is about your current marriage. The literal word there is one man, woman, okay? That you are a, a, a one, that you have one wife, okay? And, and one woman, man. I'll get it straight here. Thank you. One woman, man. And the idea there is that you are the husband that you ought to be to your wife as a pastor. Now, let me say this real quickly. My wife knows this, and she reminds me of it if I get too smart with her. If she ever leaves me, I'm done. Okay? I'm done. I'm not going to fight for my church. I'm going to fight for my marriage. So she goes down to Alabama, and guess what? I'm going down to Alabama. I'm going to go get her. I'm not going to fight to keep my job here. I'm going to fight for my marriage. And I don't know that I could ever pastor again if my wife leaves me. Uh, But anyway, moving on. Pastor must be self-controlled. Pastor must be temperate, not given to extremes. If a would-be pastor is a glutton, that's a problem. He's not exercising self-control. You know, last night I got close. I got home and we had a great meal over at another couple's in the church, and I sat there and had so much great food. Thank you for that great food. Then I sat home and sat, well, watched a football game. I just got a bag of potato chips out, and I just started eating those things like, stop, Kevin, stop, all right? Monique found chips all over the chair the next morning, this morning, okay. Anyway, got to be self-controlled. Pastor's got to be reliable, dependable, trustworthy. He must not be moody. He's got to be mature. He sets the example. The pastor must also be sober-minded. He thinks and acts in a clear manner. He knows how to take serious manners seriously. There's nothing wrong with having a great sense of humor. But don't cheapen the gospel by foolish behavior. The pastor must also be respectable. He behaves well in the best sense of the word. You don't have to worry about him embarrassing you in the world with his actions. A pastor must be respectable and a pastor must be hospitable. He cares about strangers. He's friendly. He reaches out to people. He's approachable. He doesn't treat people like he's too busy. Now, I read a lot of church growth blogs, okay? I have a doctor's degree in evangelism and church growth. I'm not an expert, but I am a student of it. So I read a lot of that. I probably have five or six or eight or ten different email accounts and blogs that I get from various sources and probably get four or five of them every day from somebody. And some of the stuff you read on this pretty good, I think. And some of it, when you look at our context here, it is nonsense. It's baloney, in my opinion. One of those is that the pastor shouldn't do very much visiting. That if somebody's in the hospital, you don't go there, pastor. You get the deacon to go. You get somebody else to go, but don't you go to the hospital. Now, I realize if we were a church of 5,000 people in attendance, I probably couldn't go to the hospital every time somebody had a surgery. And I still don't if they're in Louisville sometimes. But I believe that I set the example. Now, as we grow, we're going to continue to need deacons and Sunday school leaders and other group leaders to continue to do more and more of the help of the visiting. But I believe I should always be a part of the visit. That's just who I am. That's what I'm going to do. And hopefully I can always do some of it, but I'll never do all of it. See, one person can't do nearly as much as 300, right? So we all have to do some, but I'm not going to say, well, I don't do visiting. I'm too good for that. 
Now, the second thing they say is, Pastor, don't give people in the church your cell phone number. Just don't do it. They'll be calling you all the time and harassing you. And and just give it to a few select leaders in the church, but don't give it to everybody, okay? Let me tell you something. Do you know how many people attend the average church in America on a Sunday morning? About 75. We have probably over 300 who attend here on Sunday morning. You know how many phone calls I get from members a week on my cell phone? Maybe 10, and half of those are staff members. I don't think I'm overwhelmed with cell phone calls, okay? So here's my cell phone number, 270-300-3078, okay? If you didn't get that, it's in the church directory, okay? Now, if you harass me too much, I'll block you. I've only had one person that I should have blocked, okay? He, he used to attend here about... It wasn't, wasn't Larry Nett, okay? Larry's not here, okay? There was a guy that used to attend our church. I don't know if he's a member or not. He shouldn't have been. But anyway, I'm serious. He would call me when he got drunk. Seriously. And he would cuss me out. Up one side and down the other about how I'm this lousy, no good, whatever. He wished he had a job like mine. Well, if you drink like that, you're probably not going to get one. But anyway, I should have blocked him. But that's the only one that I can really think of. And, you know, if I start getting 50 phone calls a day from people, I might have to change my policy. But if I'm only getting five a week, I think it's okay to give your cell phone number out. That's just me, okay? All right. In the New Testament world, traveling ministers often needed a home. So the context here was likely. They didn't have cell phones back then, and they didn't have hospitals. But they did have homes, pastors did, and a lot of times if a minister was traveling, they needed a place to stay, and so they would often stay at a minister's house. And they said, you need to be welcoming to these people. Pastor must also be able to teach. Pastor's got to be able to share the truth of Scripture That doesn't mean that he has to be spellbinding. It doesn't mean that when he stands up to preach, everybody in the church leans forward in their pews because they can't wait to hear what he has to say next. Okay, it doesn't mean that. What it does mean is it has an ability to teach the word of God. And that people can understand the word of God when he's teaching that. Verse 3 says, not a drunkard. The King James says, not given to wine. You don't want the pastor who says, let's have a deacon's meeting over at the bar. I'd like to be a fly in the wall at that meeting anyway, you know. Pastor just said to the deacons, let's have a deacon's meeting over at the bar. Yeah, that's going to work well, right? Okay. Obviously, drunkenness is a sin. This thoroughly condemned scripture. But I would suggest that the wiser and safer choice in our culture is abstinence from alcohol. If you don't ever start drinking, you don't have to worry about becoming an alcoholic. You don't have to worry about that fine line between taking a drink and getting buzzed or drunk. Drinking often leads to other problems as well. Alcohol is a factor in 40% of all violent crimes a day. And according to the Department of Justice, 37% of almost 2 million convicted offenders currently in jail report that they were drinking at the time of their arrest. 
Those of you who've been living in Hardin County for a long time probably know the worst drunk driving accident that ever occurred in the United States of America happened in our area. There was a church, Radcliffe, Kentucky, on a trip in a church bus, and a drunk driver hit them head on and killed 27 people. If that guy had to been drinking, probably wouldn't have happened. And it can also be a stumbling block. You may say, well, the Bible doesn't say you can't take a drink, and I understand that. But if you are drinking out at the restaurant and you see somebody else and they believe it's wrong, you could be a stumbling block to that person. So my suggestion would be not drink at all. I obviously don't drink, okay? My wife doesn't drink, though I could drive her to drinking sometimes the way I act sometimes. But <laughs> Next three characteristics go together. The pastor must not be violent but gentle, not quarrelsome. The pastor should be a peacemaker. He employs the truth of Proverbs 15.1. says, a soft answer turneth away wrath, but grievous words stir up anger. James 3.17 and 18 says, the wisdom that comes from above is, first of all, pure, then it's peace-loving. It's considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit. Peacemakers are so in peace, raise a harvest of righteousness. Verse 3 says to the pastor that he must not be quarrelsome, nor a lover of money. Listen, if you are a pastor or you want to be a pastor and your number one goal is to make a lot of money, you chose the wrong profession, right, Terry? And if you are a pastor and you think that you ought to be making a lot of money because you are a pastor, Guess what? You're going to be upset about your salary. They don't pay me enough. So you can't be a lover of money. You're just going to be frustrated if you're a pastor and a lover of money. You're going to be asking for ministers' discounts everywhere you go. That's embarrassing, okay? Don't do that. Verse 4 tells us that a pastor must manage his own household well with all dignity and keeping his children submissive. I posted that verse on my teenage daughter's doors yesterday. You must be submissive. No, I didn't really do that. Now, my goal for my 15-year-old daughter is not that she would hang on every word of my sermon. That'd be nice, but I'm not expecting that. It's not that when I come home from church, she says, Dad, can you share a little bit more from 1 Timothy with me? I just didn't get enough. My goal for my daughter is not that you would say, hey, Dad, what are you preaching on Sunday? I want to do a two-hour Bible study on it before I get to church. Nah, that's probably not going to happen, okay? But I do have two goals for her. One of them is this, that she loved Jesus with all of her heart. And that being in a pastor's house, being in my house, is going to help her love Jesus, not cause her to not want to follow Jesus. That's goal number one for my daughter is that she's going to love Jesus with all of her heart. Goal number two is this, that she is going to love the church, that she's going to like coming to church, and she's going to love being around the people of God. And one day, whenever she is too old for me to tell her to go to church, she's going to go to church on her own because she knows God and she loves Jesus and she had a great experience at Northside Baptist Church. 
I want to applaud you guys because because of you and because of the way you treat my family, my family loves being part of the church. And I'm going to applaud you guys. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. I really do. That's my two primary goals for my daughter is that she's going to love Jesus and she's going to love being part of the church. I may not get everything else I want, but I want to get those two things. And by the way, Tree Acres are youth ministers in Ireland. I'll give you a shout out, Tree. Thank you so much for you and for the parents and for all of our youth group for what you do to invest in the life of my daughter and others. Verse 5 says, For someone does not know how to manage his own family, how will he care for God's church? I have to be honest with you. My family is not a perfect family. Things get pretty real sometimes at the Roberts house. We've even yelled at each other on occasions, and I hate that when that happens. We don't have three-hour Bible studies every night. We don't focus on all-night prayer meetings, though that'd be great. I'd be all into that. Um, when I come home from work, Monique doesn't run in slow motion to me and say, Oh, Kevin, you're finally home. It's so good to see you. What's God telling you today? I want to know. That doesn't happen in my house, okay? It's like, hey, the dog needs to be walked, okay? Yes, ma'am. That's pretty much how it works, okay? But I do want us to grow in our love for God, our love for Jesus, and our love for the church. I want us to keep growing in our faith. Verse 6 tells us that a pastor must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. You don't want to call a pastor who's a new Christian, not a senior pastor, perhaps a staff member, but not, not a senior pastor. A couple of reasons. One's they're going to make a lot of really dumb mistakes. They're going to be on fire and vibrant and all this. They're going to make some really stupid decisions. So you don't want that. And the other problem is if they start seeing things happening and the church starts growing and things are booming around there, guess what? There's a tendency to become prideful and they will fall because the Bible teaches us that pride comes before a fall. And many a pastor who have led churches to grow and see this expansion happen among them, have gotten too much into themselves and they've fallen away from Christ and from the ministry. Verse 4 tells us the pastor must have a good reputation with outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace into the snare of the devil. If the devil can get the pastor, the devil can get the church. The pastor is the number one target of the devil in most churches. And if the pastor can't get the devil... Or the devil can't get, if the devil can't get the pastor, he's going to go after the pastor's family. If he can't get them, he's going to go after the staff and the other leaders in the church and their families. And so we must be on guard. If churches would do a better job, more careful job of screening people going into the ministry, they'd have a lot less people falling into sin once they get into the ministry. Characters especially important for those in leadership. But truth be told, it's important for all of us. If you've joined this church in the last five and a half years or so, you probably have heard a bit of my testimony. I'm going to share just a, a few minutes of it today. 
I grew up, as many of you did, in a Christian home. My parents uh, brought me to church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. You know, we had a drug problem. They kept dragging me to church, okay, all the time. And I loved the Lord, and I believed in the Lord, and I, I believe I was saved at a very young age. But when I was a senior in high school, I started reading the Bible through. And God began working in my life. And I remember the summer after I graduated from high school, I was working a very boring job at what was then called McDonnell Douglas. Now it's been bought out by Boeing. And I was putting some cards back in this card catalog file. How many of you old enough to know what a card catalog file is? And I was putting these cards back in this file. And I remember having this great sense of gratitude that since Christ had given his life for me, the least I could do is give my life and return back to him. At that point, my life changed dramatically. But I did not want to go nor feel called to go into the ministry at that point. You know why? Because God has called every single one of us to follow him with all of our hearts. Whether you're a clergy or a lay person, whether you're a deacon or a pastor or a Sunday school teacher or you're a brand new Christian, all of us are called by God to follow Jesus Christ with all of our hearts. But let me also say this. We all blow it. We all fail. So if you're sitting there today and you think, you know, I'd love to be a part of this church, but uh, you don't know my past, Kevin. You don't know my struggles. You don't know my issues. You don't know my problems. I've got good news for you. God knows them. And God loves you. And God died on the cross, Jesus did, that you might be forgiven of every issue, every struggle, every problem that you have in your life. And he's there for you, and he's there with you. He's promised he won't leave you. He won't forsake you. And so I urge you today, I plead with you today, follow Jesus Christ with all of your life. And if God is leading you to be a part of this church, we'd love to have you to stand alongside us and serve Jesus Christ together. Would you pray with me?